This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, and welcome to a new episode of Women Who Travel. Today, our story unfolds not far from the Condé Nast Traveller offices in One World Trade Centre. It's a tale that spans generations, of a family coming from China to America, via various routes and settling in Lower Manhattan's Chinatown, a place I visit often. Telling this story is my guest, Ava Chin, whose memoir, Mott Street, a Chinese-American family's story of exclusion and homecoming, came out this spring. One of the main characters of her story is 37 Mott Street, a multi-apartment building constructed in 1915 on the corner of Mott and Pell. Over the course of her painstaking research for the book, Ava discovers that different strains of her family converged in this building over a period of four decades. This family that basically hated each other by the time I was born were, in fact, upstairs, downstairs neighbors from each other who went to the same churches, were in Boy Scouts together, summered out on the Jersey Shore together, right, went to school together, ate dinner at each other's kitchen tables. And they were all not just connected through this building and through common language ties and cultural ties, because they were originally from the same parts of southern China, but that they were all living here. By the way, I've counted at least 49 family members that have lived there. And Every time, like, when I started working on the research and um, talking to people and former residents there, what was so lovely was that there was a period in time in which I felt that my ancestors were leaving little breadcrumbs for me through the story. Stanley Chin, Ava's father, walked out on her mother before Ava was born. You grew up in Flushing with a single mother, and you had this curiosity about your family history. And the book opens with you somewhat sneaking off to meet your father in Chinatown in Manhattan. Describe, for listeners who aren't familiar with New York City in the way that we are, how far away does Flushing feel from Manhattan's Chinatown, especially when you're younger and you're growing up? So back then, it felt enormously different. Flushing wasn't, and Queens 
wasn't the multicultural mecca that it is today. So New York's, Manhattan's Chinatown was where we went to go grocery shopping. But I had absolutely no idea that the side of my family that I was estranged from, my father's side, a side that felt very shadowy and elusive, was right there the entire time. Growing up, there were my grandmother's photo albums, giant photo albums as thick as Bibles. And I would sit there and pour over them on Saturday afternoons and ask her, Grandma, who's that person? Um, and, oh, who's that white woman who's sitting next to your uncle, right? Um, and tell me about your father and your mother and how she came over. And so, um, you know, my grandmother was raised as a proper Lutheran, and she didn't like to air the dirty laundry, so there were many times where sometimes she didn't want to talk to me, but other times, um, you know, she would open up. And that was always nothing short of marvelous. So you said that she didn't want to air the dirty laundry. So when you were, you know, going through these photo albums um, and asking her all these questions, I mean, I feel like I always used to, with my grandmother, um, the line I used to trot out, which in retrospect is quite offensive, as I used to say, told me about the olden days. And then she would like, you know, have <laughs> have all these stories she'd go to and she'd tell me the same stories over and over again. Um, did you get a sense that things were being shielded from you or hidden or a certain family story was getting told to you and you knew there was more? Yes, absolutely. So um, her husband, my grandfather, was the grandson of a Chinese railroad worker who worked on the nation's first transcontinental railroad, which unified the country after the Civil War. And my grandfather loved telling stories about his grandfather working on the railroad. And in fact, actually, his first words in English were the names of the railroad companies that built the railroad. <laughs> so, 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 so that's how much pride we had in 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 the building of the railroad. And so I always grew up knowing that we had this connection to this apparatus that, you know, really meant something that unified the country from coast to coast. But what surprised me was when I went to school and I opened up the big textbooks on American history and I looked at the one chapter about the completion of the railroad and how important it was, right? And the official photograph did not have a single Chinese face in the photo. It was fascinating to follow how Ava pieced together information about her father. My mother uh, ran into my oldest half-sister, who asked if I wanted to meet my father. I always wanted to meet him. I always wanted to know who this other side of my family was. And then, interestingly enough, my other sister, we found out, worked for Condé Nast Traveler. What? Yes. And so I... When? Yes. <laughs> this is the most incredible plot twist. We've never had this in an interview before. So I worked in publishing 
Uh, and I knew enough to call the Condé Nast switchboard, and that's how I was able to Wait, find okay, her. Wait, okay, there's a switchboard. What? When is this? Uh, well, you know, uh, let's let's put it this way. This is probably the height of the grunge era. Okay, great. So that tells you something. All right, my favorite music genre, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I called the switchboard, and I got her voicemail, and I left a message, and then eventually... She picked up her jaw off the floor and called me back. And then I was I met them, and then I met my father. I first meet my father on one of the main streets in Chinatown, in old Chinatown. This very short block. It's called Pell Street. It's got it's only two blocks long, but it's got everything. It's got, you know, uh, hair salons and the first shalombao place, the first soup dumpling place in the city. Um, it's got a Baptist church, you know. Um, anyway, and it also held my father's office. And that's where I first met him for the first time. When we were walking out of his office and onto the street, he pointed out a six-floor red brick tenement apartment building dating back to 1915. And he said, see that window over there? That's where your grandparents live. And see that other window over there? That's where your great-grandparents lived. And in the first window that he pointed to, that's where he was born. Months later, I was asking my maternal grandmother, who raised me, about her being raised in Chinatown. And she admitted that she, too, was born at home. Then she told me the address. <laughs> And the address was the same building where my father was born. A remarkable discovery, but less of a coincidence than it seems at first. The connection lies in a piece of legislation passed in 1882 by President Chester Arthur banning Chinese laborers from coming to America. Chinese Americans grouped together to fight discrimination and seek refuge through community. It's why people stayed under the same roof for so long. The Chinese Exclusion Act laws were our country's first major immigration restrictions. They effectively halted legal Chinese immigration into our country and blocked a pathway towards our citizenship for over 60 years. On the books, they were enacted in 1882, and they were only repealed during World War II, when our country and China were allies in the war. And so they were really important, not just because how they impacted Chinese people here and their families, but because they also set the tone for future immigrations going forward. So that by 1924, most Asians were banned from coming into the country. It's sort of horrifying to hear that history, but also sounds very familiar when you throw words out like immigration ban and the period in which you were writing was during COVID. Um, and there being a lot of anti-Asian American violence and racism taking place, even in New York City. How much were you thinking about these two things at the same time? So I started researching and writing the earliest chapters of the book long before the pandemic ever hit. But once it did, and I started witnessing the ways in which Chinatown was impacted by loss of businesses, people too afraid to go down there— um, and then the attacks on our community, the political situation, um, as it became worse and worse, made the book all too relevant. 
I'm going to go out on a limb and say all Chinatowns, certainly across the country, really were formed because they were a place of refuge for Chinese under the exclusion laws, under such pressures. And those pressures, although they became alleviated after Chinese exclusion was repealed, didn't really completely go away. The quota for Chinese after exclusion was repealed in 1943 was very stingy. It was only 105 a year total. After the break, what Ava and myself love about Chinatown. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshveg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions, and they make you see the scene. But every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Chinatown is a special place for me. When I landed in New York in the early 2010s, I started working for a photographer at his studio on Canal Street, which is basically the main artery of the neighborhood. It was my early introduction to the city I would eventually call home. Every lunch break meant poking around the family-run porcelain store nearby, or exploring the dim sum shops and cafes serving up chung fun with tea. 
And so I was curious to know what eating in Manhattan's Chinatown was like for Ava and what she discovered about the neighbourhood through her research about her family. Were there any food traditions that have ended up in your home? <laughs> yes. <laughs> May I have the recipes? Yes. <laughs> There's always time for food. So my family was obsessed with food to the point where my chin grandfather, um, in his oral history, was talking about like methods for cooking Peking duck and methods for making a salt-baked chicken in the oven, right? Methods for how to roast um, a pig on a spit uh, in a basement on Mott Street, right? Um, so so one one of our fa- my favorite um, recipes that I heard about was was is very it's, it's like an amalgam of different things. It is it's something called hamburger don fan, which means a hamburger with an egg. That's the don part. Over rice, that's the fun part, right? So hamburger don fan. And this was a dish that's a lot like a Hawaiian locomoco. You know, I've never, you know, have you ever had one of those? I actually haven't had one of those. Oh, it's so good. So it's, it's, it's a hamburger with a fried egg on top, which is kind of runny, right? Not too overcooked, um, over a bed of caramelized onions with a uh, brown gravy on top. Sounds great. It's so good. Uh, to make it healthy, I put it over brown rice. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. So I, when I heard about this recipe, and it's a recipe that we used to, it was a a dish that my Chin family used to sell at their coffee shop. They own the first coffee shop in Chinatown on Pell Street. And it was a favorite dish. And I heard about this and I started making it for my kid. And now every once in a while, she asks for hamburger donfang. And I have to do it. That coffee shop. And I think I know the one it is because it's still there, right? No, it's not there anymore, sadly. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yes, yes. Um, There is a coffee shop um, on Pell Street, which is across from where our old coffee shop used to be. And it is is the only remaining uh, coffee shop eatery from my childhood. Okay, because I block. love I love that place. Yes. It's the place I go and sit by myself on the weekend when it's raining outside. Oh. It's I I just like have a, such a soft spot for it. Um the food is great. It is it is a great place. I'm very impressed with you now that I know that you go there. Well, you know, I'm not a traveler editor for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Ava describes how her Uncle Hang was one of the first merchants to set up a flourishing grocery store in Chinatown. In this section, my great-uncle is arriving to New York and trying to lay down roots in this community. It's a little unclear from the family records. Some people say 1880s, other people say 1890s. I think it was probably the early 1890s. And so... This is Uncle Hing, who had prior to this worked out in the Pacific Northwest doing dangerous manual labor in the fishing industry. And he arrives in New York and he sees a golden opportunity and he hatches a plan. Buying from locals like Big Lewis and Sayup vegetable farmers from the outer boroughs, 
he used his gambling money and set up one of the first grocery stores on Mott Street, Ying Chong, or Grand Eagle. Situated among the curio shops, gambling parlors, and opium dens, Ying Chong was directly across the street from Naughton's funeral parlor and stable, which is where our building later um, is built. Naughton, who also owned Ying Chong's building, was Hing's landlord. Business flourished. Gamblers flush with winnings bought groceries for a little taste of home. Succulent pork belly, pristine lo ba, and hairy taro root. Even the poorest workers could afford the cheaper cuts of meat, pig ears and pork trotters to feed themselves and their roommates. The cooks at gambling parlors, which provided food for patrons in order to keep everyone full, happy, and betting at the tables, began buying their ingredients directly from him. Because sales were so good, Hing sent for his kin. I love that part. Thanks for letting me read it. Now, Ava has her writing room at 37 Mott Street. So that's a fifth generation in the building. There were portions of the book that I was writing in what I consider our ye old family homestead. Um, and that was a really, it was a wonderful thing, you know, and it was a real gift and a privilege to be able to do that, you know, to to feel like I was, I was in the rooms uh, where people had given birth to my family members and to be able to write down their stories inside the building was was a real gift. Out of interest quickly, when you were writing, what did you look out on? So I looked out into the back end of the building, which really faces the back end of Mulberry Street. And there's a little clue in the book about an understory tree that I was looking at. And I, I can't, I don't figure out what that that, that tree is until the end of the book. Um, I don't make a really big deal about it, but it's a tree. It was the same tree that that author, I think her name was Betty Smith, had written A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. It's the same tree. It's, oh, that's magical. Yeah, yeah. So um, that, that was what I was looking out onto. And, and then I could hear the church bells ringing twice a day. I, I always loved hearing those church bells because they were the same church bells that my grandmother and her siblings and my uh, grandfather and his siblings heard as well. Coming up, continuing the ancestral research across the ocean and tips from Ava on how to look into your own heritage. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. 
But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Ava's story begins with her pioneering family members who emigrated from the Pearl River Delta to make their way in the American West. As a young grad student, she goes to a small mountain town to look for the grave of her grandfather, who left Toisson in Guangdong in 1938. It was a mild January in semi-tropical Toisson, and I was dressed in jeans and a t-shirt topped with my grandfather's plaid shirt. There is a Chinese belief that the best place to bury your ancestors is on a hill with a view. And this one had all of those elements, a walkable mountain, a view of the valley. When we stopped in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by spring ferns, young pine trees, and old grass the color of hay, I watched puzzled, until the guide and my uncle pulled away the grass and twigs and suddenly revealed a dried mud mound embedded into the hill with a tombstone in it. It was my great-great-grandfather Yuan-san's gravesite. I had never seen a gravesite so unkempt and unassuming. I had traveled all this way from America to find myself standing in front of a mound of mud on a hilltop marked only by a sand-colored headstone with his name on it, Yuan-sun Wong. Where was my great-grandmother buried, I wondered, but no one seemed to know for sure. I pulled out from my messenger bag red-tapered candles on sticks, incense with red handles, gold and silver on orange squares of funeral paper, a suite of apples and oranges. What was it like to go to go to China? And also, had you been going there a lot before um, you kind of went there for research purposes? I had been there quite a few times before we moved to China on a Fulbright uh, in 2017, the spring of 2017. And I was teaching at one of the top universities in China. And but I was I was honestly, really there to do the research. And I would, uh, on weekends, you know, jump on a plane uh, and go back to our family villages and start asking questions of the villagers. I discovered that Chinese people were really big into genealogy because all of the, the villages that I visited had genealogies of the families. And my chin side went all the way back to the Mongol Empire, 
right before the Ming Dynasty. Um, so that's, you know, like 1200s, 1300s we're talking about. On the Qin side, I found out that we come from a long line of generals who during the Ming Dynasty were elevated to a kind of military nobility, kind of the same way that samurai were a kind of a noble class during feudal Japan. So um, for about just over 200 years, I, you know, my family members were descendants from, you know, these generals. So I, I kind of always thought, you know, like, the next time I'm on the subway and somebody, like, wants to start something with me, I just think, you really don't know who you're dealing with. <laughs> I mean, to that point, like, you joke, but do you think that process has allowed you to kind of get to know yourself better and have an understanding of your identity? I think it does help. I'm interested in who were the women in the family, right? Why didn't those stories get saved. Um, so, so in as much as what's there is there is helpful, there's always so much more that I want to know. I feel like that is like sort of like the American fantasy of going back to the like sort of country where you have heritage and someone actually remembering you. I'm thinking of in, this is a slightly silly analogy to make, but in um, the latest season of White Lotus, I don't know if you've seen it, but there are some Italian-Americans who go to this village because they're convinced they have a relative living there and they want to find out more about their family. And they knock on the door and it's supposed to be this magical moment and this woman essentially screams at them and tells them to do one and to get off her property. And they walk off with their tails between their legs. Um, but it sounds like you had the complete opposite experience. That's right. Despite the fact that my family has been here in America... For so many generations, for over a hundred years, there were still people in the villages who remembered my great-grandparents. Everyone wants to know about people's families, right? I feel like I have a pretty decent grasp on... My mother's side, my mother's British, uh, my dad's Turkish, and that's always held so much more of an allure to me. And it's not like it's that anything's been shrouded in secrecy. I just think it's further away and it's not the country I grew up in. And so it's going to require me a lot more work to dive into that side of my family and truly get an understanding of it. Like I have, you know, I know that there's like a great, great aunt who used to get the train every weekend from southern Turkey to Damascus to go shopping. Like, I want to know everything, but, like, where do you start? The best time I found was the best way to engage in conversations was through their personal items. So my grandmother had her photo albums, and so I would just ask her questions about who the people in the photo albums were. The other um, tip I would give any um, would be, you know, um, aspiring genealogist or family historian is to start asking people questions at family gatherings um whether it's 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 whether that's like like weddings maybe even funerals you know the meal that you have after a funeral um it's just people open up more when they're around their peers and over food it sounds like you 
it's sort of, there's a sort of full circleness to this book coming out. But I have to ask whether you feel like you had closure or if there are still puzzles to solve and holes to fill. Yeah, I will say that, um, you know, if if we want to just touch base and talk about my father for a second, there are ways in which that I was certainly disappointed. There were there were ways that I really wanted our relationship to be different. But you know, I don't I don't know any any daughter or son who doesn't feel that way. And I imagine that you weren't writing the book for him. You were writing the book for yourself, right? Absolutely. Um and I was thinking about, you know, my daughter as well. The great thing about this book is that working on it really put me in touch with the community, my own heritage, my own self sense of where I came from, you know, where we came from. And these are stories of love and resilience and survival that I can now pass down to my daughter and future generations. Next week, I talk to actor Gabrielle Union about taking her extended family and many friends on a trip to Zanzibar, Ghana, Namibia and South Africa in honour of her 50th birthday as part of a new docuseries on BET+. I'm Lale Arakoglu and you can find me on Instagram at Lale Hannah. Our engineers are Jake Loomis and Gabe Caroga. The show's mixed by Amar Lal. Duke Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. Well, thank you for writing the book and allowing not just your daughter to read about this history. I will be doing digging into your mysterious relative that was at Condé Nast Traveller. <laughs> we still have a few people on staff who were here from the start so they'll I'm sure they'll know how mm, I'm sure they will <laughs> hey it's Chris Clemick here if you like this show you might enjoy there's more to that It's a new podcast from Smithsonian Magazine and PRX where I'll be talking to journalists around the globe, taking inspiration from the Smithsonian Institution's museums and research centers and using insightful reporting to explore the mysteries of the wider world. Plus, every episode comes with at least one conveniently packaged fact for you to share at your next dinner party. So check us out. Subscribe to There's More to That from Smithsonian Magazine and PRX and find out how much more there is to almost everything. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.